0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Ben Burgess. Ben is a philosopher and logician who lectures at Rutgers University. He has a segment on the Michael Brooks show called The Debunk and writes a weekly column for Jacobin Magazine. We spend most of the show talking about his book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, which challenges the left to take logic more seriously. We also discuss... The aesthetic of reason being adopted to defend bad arguments. Why the left needs to make better arguments for their positions. The limits of logic in persuading people whose material interests differ from our own. Why left principles for redistribution don't stop at our borders. Conflict versus mistake theory in explaining the motivations of our political opponents. And where each theory may apply. The importance of interpreting our allies' arguments charitably. Ben's thoughts on moral philosophy. Why tankies are bad utilitarians. Double standards for Marx versus other problematic thinkers from history, Jeremy Bentham's good takes, state monopoly on violence and police reforms, where Ben disagrees with the left, the problems with a radically empirical worldview, whether utilitarianism takes you to implausible places, and how to balance epistemic humility with the need to be confident bullshitters. Here is Ben Burgess. Ben, thank you so much for joining us.
1: All uh, right, thank you.
0: So let's just start off with your book, The uh, what is this book? Why did you write it?
1: Yeah, so uh, the book, uh, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, uh, is supposed to be a couple things kind of at the same time. One of them uh, is a polemic about why people on the left, people who share the kind of political project that I care about, uh, should care more about logic Uh which is not certainly not to say that there aren't plenty of people on the left who aren't making, you know, good arguments. Uh, but the, but, you know, logic is really the discipline of, uh, breaking down exactly how arguments work and how they can go wrong. That's where the logical fallacies come in. And I think some people, uh, on the left overreact to the weaponization of the rhetoric of logic and logical fallacies on the right. Um, by kind of rolling their eyes when the subject comes up. So it's a polemic for them to take the subject more seriously. It's also an attempt to kind of take uh, those people on the right who do kind of weaponize that rhetoric down a notch. And it's also an attempt to give people a sort of usable, you know, in a very, you know, it's a short book, but in a a rudimentary kind of way, you know, something like a little rough and ready informal logic textbook uh, that's particularly applicable to thinking about how uh, arguments uh, work and his work in the context of contemporary political debates.
0: Cool. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was a quick read. I found it to be pretty helpful. Um, I did four years of competitive debate in uh, high school and college. <laughs> so I was familiar with a lot of these, but in the context of like left wing politics, it, it was uh, new to me. And, it, and some, something you hint at in the book and writers like Nathan Robinson capture pretty well is how people like Ben Shapiro um sam harris and others kind of like in that domain adopt the aesthetic of reason uh they invoke the words fact and logic as if they're magically going to make their arguments infallible and uh i think you do a very good job of explaining like that's not what logic means
1: well thank you yeah no that's that's definitely what i was going for um interestingly enough by the way i only um i did do one year of uh competitive debate in high school um and the only interesting thing about that is that uh, one of my uh, one of my teammates was one Nate Silver.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, you mentioned him in the book. <laughs> yeah. um, was he good at debate?
1: Yeah, no, he was. You know, I, I have nothing. You know, like it, it would be uh, <laughs> it would be much funnier and much more interesting if I had anything negative to say about him as, as a person. I think he's a he's a good guy who just happens to have mediocre centrist politics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I know somebody who recently went to work there and, uh, this person was a little concerned about like working with him based on his Twitter persona, but has said in real life, he's, you know, very nice. And, uh, I think on I people can have bad politics and be interpersonally very kind.
1: Yeah, no, which is, which is very inconvenient, right? It'd be, uh, it'd be much, uh, it'd be much clearer if bad political commitments were always, uh, accompanied by being just personally abhorrent.
0: Yeah. Right. It's, it's one of the more annoying things where somebody will, I mean, Sam Harris does this a lot where he's like, Oh, Ben Shapiro is so nice to me and people on the left are so mean to me. So Ben Shapiro is a good person, even though like, he's like actively misgendering trans people and, you know, saying that Arabs want to live in raw sewage and, you know, just basically fomenting, um, racism and other forms of extremism. Right. <laughs> Great guy. <laughs> um, Yeah, and and it's funny because I'm also a Chapo Trap House fan and they're kind of how I came to the left, you know, with a lot of help from Current Affairs and and other more quote-unquote like credible sources. Um, But I always find it funny how they like say, you know, their book is a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. But they like actually make very convincing arguments. Uh, Not on everything, of course, but but they're using evidence. They
1: absolutely do, right? Like, um, it's, yeah, no, very often. And, you know, but like, they are definitely just, dis- like, you know, I- look, the whole manifesto against logic, facts, and reason thing is obviously mostly a joke. And I have no interest in policing the, you know, the degree to which it's a joke and the degree to which it's not a joke. For one thing, that's the very least funny thing you can do to a joke. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but they are definitely exhibiting that kind of visceral reaction to logic talk that I am trying to... Uh, push back against, and you know, I agree that they do often make you know, I mean, especially um, like you know, Matt and Amber, uh, you know, as as I think sometimes the two most thoughtful people on there, you know, like they do often, you know, make very good arguments. Uh, but um, but on the other hand, I also feel like they they could sometimes benefit from like um, taking a taking a step back and and thinking about the structure of some of the arguments in a way that like you almost kind of couldn't because if nothing else it would it would ruin the joke about how, you know, logic sucks and it's for nerds and you know whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I grew up watching the Colbert report and the daily show and it was always a little weird to me when they would invoke this defense that, you know, they're just comedians, they're not political figures. Uh Colbert and John Stewart had this massive rally in DC um, to restore sanity and they call it on people to do basically yeah. nothing. Um, which strikes me as like, you have this massive platform and I think you actually have an obligation to do something with it. And, you know, Chapo in recent years is or within the last like year or so, I think they've taken that pretty seriously. Giving platforms to, you know, candidates like Tiffany Caban or Julia Salazar before big elections, Marianne Williamson recently, and, and doing those as pretty much straight interviews. Um, and so, I think they're kind of striking this balance with like recognizing that when you have hundreds of thousands of listeners and, you know, a million dollars a month coming in or whatever it is at this point, you have, like, uh, some obligation to to use that platform to, you know, advance yeah, good no, causes. Absolutely.
1: And, you know, the whole thing, right, was, was based on, uh, I mean, I remember being really frustrated by that rally to restore sanity at the time, uh, especially because, like, even, like, some of the, like, when they, like, would, would sort of promo it, they would do these clips of people saying unreasonable things, and the unreasonable things they had clips of right wingers saying were like actually crazy um, things, you know, that, you know, liberals are terrorists or whatever. And they, like, what I remember one of the clips of, like, a, of a, you know, left winger that they had, you know, to do the false equivalence was like Bush is a war criminal. I was like, well, hold on, I mean, Bush is a war criminal <laughs> right like that's just to, to like you know we can like actually break down like the content of you know the international treaties and stuff like that's just objectively true um which which is one of the things which does lead into something that i was trying very hard in the book to uh at a couple points to sort of clarify which is that um when you say i want people to um to care about logic and, uh, and making good arguments, uh, that can very easily be mistaken for a, well, the kind of critique that's embodied in the rally to restore sanity, the kind of critique that's embodied in about 300 annoying Jonathan shade articles. Um, we say, well, what I really want is for everybody to like turn down the temperature and not be so ideological and to like, Come together to have a reasonable discussion about, you know, solutions to political problems, um, and I think that's importantly wrong, right? Like I, I I'm not, yeah. you know, and I'm not advocating it because I, 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 just don't think that's the uh, that's the right way to to think about politics, right? We should care about making good arguments. Well, one because before we even think about stuff like debate, right? Logic is about reasoning, which doesn't even have to involve a second person. That could just be you trying to figure out what's true. Uh, and so of course, you know, you wanna make sure you get it right, right? So these tools are gonna be helpful for that. And two, um, we could, it's entirely consistent to say on the one hand, that there's no moral argument we could ever give to Jeff Bezos that would convince him to reform the conditions in the Amazon warehouses or spend a penny more in taxes than, you know, he, he could possibly get away with. Um, that's just not happening. Uh, you know, people have different politics to a great extent because they have different values and ultimately different interests. But that said... Uh, If the only people we could convince are the people that we've already convinced, then it's like mathematically impossible to have any kind of successful left project because most people whose economic interests would even align with um, with the left wing agenda aren't yet fully convinced, right? You know, most most uh, you know most people um, you know like you know when you get to stuff like Medicare for all. You know, it pulls with a slight majority with, you know, like depending on the wording of the question and, you know, whatever. Like I think there's lots of potential for that being a majoritarian thing, you know, and it's it's certainly something that, you know, could be a, a witty message, I think. But like there are even even some of the more ambitious Bernie Sanders stuff. I don't know that a majority necessarily buys into When a majority does buy into it. It's certainly not an overwhelming majority. And then when you start thinking about going beyond capitalism entirely, that's that's nothing close to a majority position. So it's entirely compatible to say, look, I understand that like con- you know politics is at some fundamental level about conflicts, um, conflicting values, and ultimately conflicting interests. It's not that people just haven't figured out that this stuff is in their interest. Not everything is in the same people's interests, but at the same time, to say there are an awful lot of people that you can't win without who have not yet been convinced and anything that can help you persuade them is all of the good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with getting more uh, people persuaded of the ideas of the left and there's a lot of good work to be done there. Um, And I generally agree with, you know, what I would call conflict theory and and we'll get into that in a little bit, but one area I'd push back on what you just said is like, yeah, like Jeff Bezos, you know, won't be persuaded to do X or Y, but like, you could have said the same thing about Bill Gates in like the 1990s, but it seems like his wife actually persuaded him to give away, you know, the majority of his income towards some things that aren't great, like charter schools. But, you know, vaccines for sub-Saharan Africa, I think, is like actually a great way to help a lot yeah, of people. No, no absolutely.
1: Um, like they I mean, you you anticipated my response, right, <laughs> which is that, of course, you're right. A lot of it is very good and very helpful uh but it's also um it also really shows the the hard limits of um, of relying on the charity of the wealthy which is which is to say that like okay even if you can get people to do this and i also think they're more likely to do it with regard to third party recipients than they are with their own workforce um mm. because you know it's it's one thing to say that like People are going to charitably dispose of their profits, but actually, you know, actually lowering the profits in the first place is a much harder sell. Um, But it's also, but yeah, I mean, of course, yeah, some of those things are good and and whatever. Like you can certainly come up with individual examples of even fairly successful business owners who have, you know, you know, done some of that charity in their economic home, you know. I'm thinking about like Ben and Jerry's, you know, back when that was an independent company. Uh, yeah. So you know, so that that's certainly that's certainly true. Uh, but even if, for the sake of argument, you know, you could get you could get Jeff Bezos uh, to do some of these things. Um, one problem is that, to the extent that he decides that charity starts in his economic home, and he uh, and he is going to do. Um, and he is going to try to do uh, do things that would um, you know, give his workers higher wages at the expense of himself drawing lower profits, et cetera, then there, there's a there's kind of a bind here uh, because just due to the nature of the system, uh, that means that uh, he can't, you know, expand as much. Uh, granted, he's already mm-hmm. starting in a very good position in the market, but uh, but that does create an opening for competitors, right? You know, so uh, and that's that's the sort of larger problem, right? That's why it's not about the uh, the individual morality of uh, individual decision makers, uh, because there's you know because the system itself has bad incentives in it, and of course, even when even when people are persuaded to be very charitable. The, there's a larger Democratic problem, which is that they're uh, they're spending this, this money on uh, projects of their own choosing, uh, you know, so we don't have any kind of Democratic you know, veto over it. You know, so we have a. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he spends the money on vaccines. That's fantastic. Uh, but, you know, he's also going to spend money on uh, on charter schools. Right. Because you know, he's essentially using that much money charitably is essentially a matter of kind of setting a. Kind of unilateral social policy for that money, um, which uh, which is which takes us back to, to conflict theory because uh, the more um, you know, if in terms of getting overall better effects, uh, even even if we're only thinking about uh, the uh, the business owners who can be persuaded to act charitably. You're still going to get overall better effects if you can if you can democratically control that wealth and decide which projects it's spent on, rather than letting them set the priorities.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's all well taken. And to argue against myself, I believe that Bill Gates only started taking his charity seriously after he was like not running Microsoft anymore. And importantly, none of those causes threaten his position and his company's position in the marketplace. Um, so I think it's far easier to imagine Jeff Bezos giving away $50 billion to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa than it is to imagine him giving, you know, everybody at Amazon, I don't know, $30 an hour minimum wage or <laughs> right, right, right. whatever it might be.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, not that, you know, I mean, obviously it is, uh, it is good, you know, to spend that money on uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Actually, I actually find that really kind of grimly funny sometimes when, uh, Arguing, especially with like uh, libertarians about the ethics of redistribution, uh, that uh, sometimes they'll sort of bring up as if it were a trump card. Oh well, if you you know if you're in favor of redistributing wealth and you know then like shouldn't you be shouldn't you also want to like redistribute um, you know your own wealth to like the third world. And um, to which it seems like the obvious response is yes, of course. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right? You know, like <laughs> yeah. this is this is not a gotcha, right? You know, like yeah. you know, yes, of course, right? You know that there's any uh, you know any reasonable version of socialism would involve at at the bare minimum, you know, massive like you know global debt cancellation, and preferably also, you know, massive reparations <laughs> and redistribution. Um, you know, if, if you see this as a kind of reductio ad absurdum of the view, you know, it's like, oh, you know, if you have this ridiculous view, then we'd be having to give money to those people. You know, something has gone very wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, being willing to bite that bullet is uh, powerful rhetorically. And I mean, that's why I identify with the effective altruism community, because it seems like a just natural extension of being impartial between you know my interests and those of everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I would want to have access to opportunities and. You know, most people just are born without access to much because of massive inequality in the world, and just like yeah, eating that uh, and and being like, yep, this is true, and we should give you know much more of our money to you know good charities helping the developing world and also to animals and you know the far future and all these like crazy implications of just some basic principles like that one.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely.
0: So I think, uh, yeah, we touched on mistake theory or conflict theory. And so I want to bring up mistake theory, which is, um, I think, really well explained in this uh, blog post by Scott Alexander, who has a blog called Slate Star Codex, which is like this kind of nerd haven of rationalists. Um, And I don't know if it's fair to call these people logic bros, because Uh some of them, I I think, actually are really trying their best to, to get the truth. Um, there's a lot of smart people commenting on there. And, uh, yeah, so what's Scott talks about is, you know, mistake theory, which is basically looking at politics like science, engineering, or medicine, you know, a quote from him is the state is diseased. We're all doctors standing around arguing over the best diagnosis and cure. Some of us have good ideas. Others have bad ideas that wouldn't help or would cause too many side effects. Um, and you know, you, you take a pretty strong, you pretty much articulate exactly what he calls conflict theory in this quote from your book where you say, it is dangerously naive to believe that political disagreements always or even usually boil down to people with the same goals talking past each other or failing to be calm and civil enough to reason about how to get there. We have different goals because we have different values and at the base of political conflict, different interests. Um, so I personally find conflict theory to be much better at explaining the world. Um, you know, the Koch brothers... Are you know doing what they are because they control massive amounts of, you know, mineral wealth and they benefit greatly from deregulation and a smaller state. Um, I don't think you need to like understand their psyche to like understand their their class interests in that situation.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, I, yeah, I think that's that's basically right. Um, so, it's that like certainly not most political disagreement I think even, right? Never mind, not all political disagreement arises from people with the same goals uh disagreed about how to achieve them. Um, you know, we really do have have different goals and this is structurally predictable, uh, based on, you know, values and interests. Uh and it doesn't mean um like and I, I thought the earlier part of that article where I was laying out the distinction um, was fairly good uh where i thought it maybe went off the rails a little bit was uh in was later on when they were talking about how like it doesn't make you know you know like it doesn't make sense for the perspective of like conflict theory to like make an argument about why uh mistake theory is wrong or you know it's uh, you know like you know what makes like they said that like the uh they quoted, you know, earlier they quoted this like article that they said was like the epitome of uh, mistake theory, and that they said the equivalent of uh, com- for conflict theory wouldn't be a well reasoned article for the other side. It would be like some, ar- I don't even remember, like it was some article from the Baffler saying that, uh, uh, that like some, um, I don't even remember what the target of the article was, but it was like, you know, basically just accusing people of being racist, you know, for having some views. And, you know, it's a cute point, and I understand what they're saying, but I, I, I don't think that really follows, right? Like, I think that we can have, um, you know, I think that it makes perfect sense from a perspective that sees probably um, the most important sources of political disagreement being about conflicting goals to make well-reasoned arguments about why that's the case and why you should have that view, uh, you know, because just because... Just because you think the most important political conflicts arise from conflicting goals doesn't mean that nobody is ever making a mistake about everything anything that could be corrected uh, with an argument and it, and it doesn't mean that you can't uh, try to that reasoning can't be a valuable tool for persuading the people who can be persuaded even you know even given a realistic you know understanding that that's not everybody so I mean that would be my that would be my quibble about it, but I, I, I did also like the way that they set it up at the beginning of the article.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think Scott is very good at illuminating kind of the frameworks or disagreements between two sides, even if I don't agree with the side he happens to come down upon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and yeah, I, I think that like the way I think about this is conflict theory has more explanatory power when describing the real world and how politics operates. Um, you know, the massive influx of money to these like far right um, causes, you know, advanced by the Koch brothers and other billionaires like them, that are well documented in this book, uh, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, helps really explain like the ideological lands- landscape in the country. It's not that there aren't people who like really do believe that libertarian free market capitalism is the best way to you know achieve well being for the most people. Um, it's just that there's like this whole funding structure that's set up by people who have like very real interest in, in that coming to fruition. Um, but the way yeah. I can, like, yeah, no, I was on.
1: also going to say, like, there's also, uh, I mean, you don't have to go to do a very deep dive into, uh, thinking about psychology and cognitive biases to kind of get the point that, uh, people also have a tremendous, uh, built-in incentive to believe that what benefits them personally is also going to benefit the world in general.
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. That's usually, uh, argument i make when people are arguing against effective altruism but i'm like you know if if the points you're making or the evidence that you like is making you feel more comfortable about your position (laughs) you should probably consider it a little bit more carefully um but yeah i guess like the way i split this baby is that within your own community um in my case it might be effective altruism or like a dsa meeting um it's really helpful to view people as mistake theorists who are, you know, they actually do share your values and just disagree on what the best way to get there is. And I think the risk of looking at everything as conflict theory is, uh, you capture it in in this quote from your book, a left that only knows how to shame, call out, privilege check, and diagnose the allegedly unsavory motivations of people who disagree with us will lose a lot of persuadable people whose material interests should put them on our side. I really like that and uh, I think I've seen it happen before and you read like these horror stories of you know left groups like turning on themselves and it's like particularly vicious in ways that um, it's hard to imagine in a more like centrist. Absolutely
1: and and yeah and I think that there's uh, you know like it it makes sense to make a differentiation there that um, that just you know just because uh, like just because lots of of political disagreements, especially like really large scale, fundamental political disagreements arise from, uh, from differences in goals that doesn't, uh, that doesn't follow at all that, that every political disagreement does. And especially when you have some, uh, you know, prima facie evidence that, uh, that people do share your goals, like they're at a DSA. You know, that's, uh, you know, like it's uh, like the way that people will sort of, uh, jump to the most, like, farcically, un- like, I mean, I know it's kind of a cliche to talk about Twitter in this connection, but, you know, it's it's such a horrible treasure trove of examples for this, you know, like, uh, the way that, like, when people have, like, Twitter beefs with people who are clearly on their side of, like, 99% of things but like they go to the most farcically uncharitable possible interpretation of the other the other side's motivation, right? Like you know if we're having a you know if we're having a disagreement about whether the uh, the best way to like let's say we're having like a uh, Tanahisi Coates versus Adolf Reed kind of disagreement about whether the best way to look to narrow the racial wealth gap is with uh, reparations or universal social programs that'll disproportionately. Uh, benefit of uh, people in disadvantaged groups, like you, know, you really don't have to go to like your initial gambit for like why somebody might disagree with you about something like this is that you know they're, um, is that they're secretly like a, you know,' they're, you know they're secretly a Nazi and you know they, they actually don't want to narrow, narrow the racial wealth gap. like it, it could just be, you know <laughs> in these contexts, when people say, You know, it's one thing. I I think we could make you know we can use the we can use decent judgment and make a distinction between somebody who says, uh, "Oh yeah, I totally share your goal of alleviating poverty. I just happen to think the best way to do it is to like abolish the minimum wage and let bosses do whatever they want." Uh, (laughs) And you and somebody who says, "Yeah, no, I I I really do," you know. I I agree with you about all the social democratic programs you want, and I agree with you about socialism, and I agree with this, and I agree with that. But I have a different take, you know, about you on like two or three issues that like we really, um, you know, like you don't have to. I mean, I think the only reason to take the first one seriously would be some kind of like performative game where you're showing, you're displaying how reasonable you are. But even if you could see through that, that really doesn't mean you have to see the second one in the same light.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what makes disagreements with somebody like Elizabeth Brunig, uh, Washington Post columnist, who's uh, a socialist, but also a Catholic and and pro-life, but like in a a pretty nuanced way. You know, it makes disagreements with her more interesting than with somebody who is a conservative, who like clearly doesn't care about people's lives very much when they're out of the womb. Um, or in prison or, yeah, you
1: know, no, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like the, the kind of disagreement you or I would have with, with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brunig, you know, like, like it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly in a very different category than, uh, the kind of disagreement that you'd have with the, uh, the person who, um, you know, who says that they're, you know, that they're pro-life because they really care so much about, uh, you know, they really care so much about unborn children, but they, like, also, like, aren't willing to, like, pay a penny in taxes to go to prenatal care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it I think that's always, like, useful for calling out the hypocrisy, but it doesn't actually tell you anything about whether unborn wife is, like, worth considering morally. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, I,
1: I mean, right. I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, I would – and I assume you would be on the same page, you know. I mean, I would disagree – uh, with both of them, right? You know, like I have a lot more respect for the Liz Brunig position, but I would disagree with both of them because I think that um, a, I don't think that there's any plausible theory, you know, I mean, not obviously these are very deep philosophical waters, what exactly it takes to be the right kind of entity to have moral rights. But uh, I am very suspicious of the idea that any plausible theory of that would include a, A literally mindless collection of cells just because they're human cells
0: yeah yeah and i think like going back to the kind of reductio ad absurdum from there if those people aren't you know vegans working to dismantle factory farming (laughs) then there's definitely some serious hypocrisy going on
1: yeah no absolutely uh that i mean in in fact that's that's funny because like sometimes i will see those people uh trying to kind of do the reductio in the other direction and saying uh oh my God, look at these like crazy liberals who, you know, who care more about, um, you know, pigs and cows than they do about human babies. And you're know, like, well, hold on. right? <laughs> like, you know, a, uh, uh, like a, a, uh, a post-birth pig or cow actually – does seem to check all of the boxes that would be in any plausible moral theory about what kind of entities we should care about, much more than certainly a, a first trimester, you know, fetus without anything resembling, you know, working brain or you know, nervous system or anything like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I guess we're dancing around it, but I, I wanted to ask: like, Do you subscribe to any school of moral philosophy?
1: Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm, I don't really have very fixed uh, commitments there. I mean, I. I like. um, I mean, I find uh, like I find like when it comes to questions about, you know, political justice, you know, I find like the uh, you know veil of ignorance kind of framework very you know like there's something very intuitively right about that. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. This is John Rawls. Kind of saying, like, assume you didn't know who you would be born Mm -hmm. uh, as in a society. How would you want the society to be structured? Generally gets to like a much less um, unequal one where, like, you might be born poor or black or with a disability or a woman, and you want to like make society good for everybody. And
1: there's there's something that seems very right about that. It seems to like encompass a lot of what's appealing about. Uh, utilitarianism, but also to like very neatly avoid a lot of the uh, the the sort of standard implausibilities of utilitarianism. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I mean, I like. I mean, I, I, I don't have I don't have any particularly well developed thoughts about most of this stuff. You know, like I, I kind of I sort of think that one of the, <laughs> you know, one of the professional dangers of um, of of like spending enough years teaching uh, students to like trying to get them to like see the you know to like feel the force of the motivations for different views and there were counters to them and everything uh is is that you uh at least in my case that makes me much less certain you know, about all of it you know because i i I've, i spend so much time like you know kind of trying to like get people to like see the case for it uh, that, like, it kind of rubs off on me. I mean, I don't even know whether I think that the one-box or new-box solution to Newcomb is right. Uh, so, but, you know, I, I find, uh, like I said, I find the Rawlsian framework very appealing for thinking about questions of uh, social justice. Uh, I think there's something very, uh, like the uh, the second uh, formulation of the categorical imperative, uh, you know, like, there's, there's something I, I find... That like, seem, feels very right about that, and that like does capture a lot of, um, you know, a lot like does capture a, a lot of plausible moral conclusions for me on everything ranging from why, well, for one thing, for why uh, I think that even when it comes to um, later in pregnancy when it starts to at least be less clear that the fetus isn't the right kind of entity to have moral rights, why, uh, you know, why that I still. Uh, I still think there should be a strong presumption in favor of um, of a right to choose that you know that there's something about uh, you know treating you know reducing people merely to the level of means to an end, you know, that's kind of you know reducing pregnant people to kind of the level of a walking incubator. Um, you know, and to uh, to capitalism for that matter that you know that if you think about like what sort of fundamentally objectionable, uh, t- about, um, you know, like wh- why the difference between uh, hierarchical capitalist workplaces and cooperative ones seems to be morally significant. Uh, well, okay, everybody in, you know, everybody in a cooperative is in some sense, you know, using everybody else for there to make a living, but uh, there seems to be something about taking somebody who you know is going to be desperate enough to accept a employment contract that will involve a wildly lopsided amount of power, and and uh, and giving them and uh, using that desperation to to impose that on them, that uh, that does seem like it's uh, it's treating people, it's reducing people to like merely a means to your economic ends. So again, I, I certainly I find all of that very rhetorically powerful. But I don't, you know, I don't have any like brilliant answer at the ready to all the standard, you know, implausibilities of pure Kantianism either. So, um, so I, I guess this is all a very long-winded no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you think in, on the left, where do people fall? More utilitarian, Kantian, yeah, that's an interesting question.
1: Um, I guess I'm not sure. I think that there are some left positions that seem to certainly track some of these that certainly seem to be a more natural fit with some of the moral positions than others. So certainly, um, like certainly being like a tanky, you know, if there's any, if there's any justification for that at all, right. It it would have to be in terms of a some form of utilitarianism and probably not one of the more sophisticated versions of utilitarianism. right? Yeah.
0: And tanky for non like lefty people out there are, people who basically are Stalinists, yeah. is that a fair yeah, yeah. Fair yeah. Assessment? like i
1: think the, the the uh the term originally comes from the uh, 1956 revolution in hungary which was like really a, a democratic socialist kind of workers revolution against the uh, uh stalinist regime and in, in hungary uh and uh or you know stalinist in a loose sense right you know khrushchev was already in power but you know like in the you know, people are pedantic about that sometimes, but you know what I mean, right? You know, that's, uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and it was actually because it was so clearly a left kind of revolution. Um, like it had the support of, well, most of the Communist Party in Hungary, even a lot of the Communist Party in the United States. Uh, the I think the initial correspondent from the Communist Party newspaper, The Daily Worker in uh, Hungary, had to be replaced because he supported it. Uh, but like the... In uh, But people who were Western leftists who cheered for Khrushchev sending in the tanks to crush the revolt uh, were referred to as tankies. And now it's used in kind of a loose sense for, I think, both people who were retroactive apologists for those regimes, you know, for what was back during the Cold War, what people often referred to, ironically or otherwise, as actually existing socialism, uh, and or people who sort of take the same impulses and use it to, like, defend, you know, these, like, real monsters like Assad who don't even pretend to be socialist just because, like, you know, American imperialism is against that and they just believe in, like, putting a, you know, putting a plus wherever, you know, America puts a minus.
0: Yeah. Uh, That's one of the more frustrating tendencies I've seen in some elements of the mostly on the internet.
1: no, absolutely. And, you know, but if you have that position, like, there's clearly – a very like crude kind of act utilitarian, you know, kind of thing going on there. That you know, because like the the way that um, I mean, to a certain extent, those people will actually deny the atrocities committed by uh, those governments, but that only goes so far, right? You know, like I think even a lot of them realize that some of the stuff you really have to fess up to. Uh, at which point, it's just sort of a ca- it's just sort of a pure calculation, like you know, um, well you know people you know alright the great leap forward was really bad you know when, when Mao tried to get people to do all this like home like uh, this like cr- smelting. Yeah, home smelting and stuff as a way of jumpstarting industrial development in the countryside and like millions of people starved to death as a response to it so okay well that was really bad but if we crunch the numbers you know China in the decades after you know uh, the People's Republic was founded in the 1940s still had fewer deaths, you know, per thousand than, you know, India did in the same time period or whatever. So it's kind of all worth it, right? You know, that's like a, that's like a very extreme kind of, um, you know, gleefully push the fat man onto the trolley track sort of position.
0: (laughs) Well, it's, there's this remarkable fact that uh, life expectancy in China actually went up during the cultural revolution, (laughs) which is just kind of mind blowing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and, um,
0: not a defensive Mao yeah. by any means, but it's just more like China was so utterly destroyed following the occupation by Japan that uh, any you know progress was yeah. still enough to wipe out the deaths well, you know, uh, by Mao's incompetence. And, and it's
1: also like, okay, even to the extent that you say, hey, you know, maybe some of that is due to um, you know, like, I mean, I, look, I don't think that we should go all the way in the other direction with regard to uh, those societies and, you know, just kind of write them off as, you know, like, you know, Narnia, you know, it's always winter and never Christmas, right? You know, that they, uh, that like there were real accomplishments in some of those societies, but instead of using that as a reason to defend the package deal, you know, like you could say, okay, but like, Hey, you know, if Cuba has like a, um, you know, like um, has like really good healthcare literacy programs, then like that might be a reason to copy those, but it's not really a reason to copy their secret police while you're at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, people, especially when you start attaching your ideology to individuals, um, that seems to be where a lot of this, the problems run into, like where you sign up with Lenin or Stalin or um, Mao, as opposed to like a specific ideology. And, and we saw that, you know, the anarchist tradition, the isms are are not named after individuals, whereas the Marxist tradition, yeah. you know, named after one guy in particular. And and one of those has led to a lot more, you know, state violence than the other.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, and of course, although it's also funny, you know, because like uh, the standards, you know, as somebody who's in academic philosophy, this really gets to be a lot, you know, that like the standards for how we, um we morally judge uh dead thinkers are interestingly you know incoherent like um like you know karl marx you know we really like uh as much as yes that's not a you know you i mean you know can definitely see the point there's something not very useful about you know uh like eternally attaching the name of an individual to the the political ideas is something that you know is is kind of an unfortunate historical accident because that does lead to dogmatism and all this stuff. But like, um, but like, you know, people will sort of say that Karl Marx should be retroactively judged uh, by the crimes of people who uh, were born after he died, uh, who uh, who did things, who carried out a political program with very little resemblance to anything that he advocated. Uh, or, or you know, like Nietzsche, the same thing on the right, right? That, like, Nietzsche, sh- you know, some people say we should be, like, historically judged by the fact that the Nazis liked him, uh, but, like, John...
0: His sister bears a lot of blame for that one. Uh, she
1: yeah. edited That's- and
0: selectively releases his, his Yes,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, they, the Nazi misappropriation of Nietzsche, starting with his sister, or the Stalinist misappropriation of Marx are sort of used to like kind of retroactively judge them, even though like, um, you know, Nietzsche without endorsing all of his moral or political ideas, you know, I mean he's certainly a reactionary, but like, you know, he wasn't anything like a Nazi, right? You know, it's not like he uh he was actually very opposed to anti Semitism and talked about that all the time, was very opposed to German nationalism. And, you know, Marx uh was consistently an advocate of, you know, of uh, free press and democratic elections, and you know his uh, his model for what a dictatorship of the proletariat would look like was the Paris Commune, which was so democratic that the anarchist wing of the First International also identified with it. The, as far as I know, the only political leader he liked enough to ever even send the guy a nice telegram, who was like an elected official, who was elected head of state, was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but like Marx gets tarnished with uh, Stalinism retroactively, which is funny because like somebody like John Locke seems to get remarkably little grief in comparison for the fact that he was personally involved in uh, the transatlantic slave trade, right? Like, or uh, or John Stuart Mill mm. was literally a, a colonial administrator for the East India Company. Uh, and he, uh, and and both of them, right, both Locke and Mill, it's not even that they were hypocrites, that, like, they were personally involved in horrible things, but, like, they both even, like, wrote philosophical justifications for them, right? You know, that's, uh, uh, there's, you know, Locke, um, well, I mean, he's, he's talking about prisoners of war, but, like, Locke does write things in defense of slavery. Uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, there's a line in On Liberty when he kind of, defends the british uh rule over india you know says that uh you know there are certain nations that are like collectively like children and can't administer their own affairs uh so i'm not saying that like ever you know i'm not saying that we should you know cancel lock or mill but uh but it does make me a little bit confused about what the standards are
0: yeah it's funny uh one of the historical philosophers that holds up surprisingly well is uh, actually jeremy bentham who's probably most famous for the panopticon the yeah. idea of observing all prisoners that once were always so creating a central location where they don't know if they're being observed so they're on their best behavior but he also defended you know gay rights women rights animal rights or he want to call them rights i guess but like he argued for yeah. you know those groups and their well-being back in the 1800s before you know yeah most people were aware of anything like that
1: oh yeah and um Also, uh, also Latin American independence. I have, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, Mike Duncan's history podcasts. Uh, he did the, here's the guy who did uh history of Rome and, and now he's doing one called revolutions. And, uh, and I listened to, uh, not that long ago, I listened to the season of that podcast about, uh, the, like Simon, uh, Simone de Boulevard and the, uh, uh, the wars to, to kick Spain out of, out of South America. And, and, you know, he was, he was also, uh, he was also apparently a strong supporter of that. So yeah, like I think, you know, as, as creepy as the uh, Panopticon is, and I guess that's probably, uh, Foucault's fault that like, that's mostly what we associate with him uh, cause you know, I think, yeah, already right, talks about that discipline to punish. Right. So, um, but, uh, um, but, yeah, no, Jeremy, Jeremy Bentham, you know, gets gets a lot of points there. You know, he, he was, especially considering how long ago he was writing, he was on the right side of a remarkable number of subjects.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would just say utilitarianism will get you to the right side of many, many things, often before other people and also some very, very weird places.
1: Yeah, right. Like, because... Uh, I mean, I, I guess it. I guess in one one like not super sympathetic to utilitarianism, gloss on that might be that there are a lot of um, there are a lot of really existing injustices that are so unjust that uh, that the the like the suffering they cause just just massively outweighs like any kind of benefit that anybody gets from them, and utilitarianism is going to reliably sort of identify those as bad once you start trying to like, um, tinker in a more fine grained way, then you'll come up with like actual trade-offs like, um, you know, is, uh, you know, are there, are there other values besides good consequences we should care about? And, you know, what if we, you know, like, and then like, you start thinking about like the science fiction versions of, you know, factory farming where there was like one giant cow who could feed lots of people. Uh, my, uh, you know my wife did her uh, her dissertation on animal ethics so you know that's the uh you know she had lots of examples like that you know then you know then then it does, it start sounding a lot less plausible but uh but you know but when it like but when it comes to like lots of like really existing forms of historical injustice you know they're so um like they're so bad that like they're, you know, that like those sorts of like subtler issues in which libertarianism might get you to weirder places just kind of don't come up, you know, like this, like, you know, utilitarianism uh, is, is just going to predictably get right. Yeah, no, we probably shouldn't have, you know, slavery.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my parents will sometimes say to me that, you know, you're very, you're very strong convictions and, you know, you're very confident in your beliefs and. The funny thing is, like, I actually have a lot of doubts about, you know, what, what is true, what is right and and everything. But in a lot of domains, if you learn about the topic, um, the ones that come to mind are like, you know, immigration, uh, prison, you know, factory farming. Right. The moral case is just so strong in favor of doing everything like as far from how we're doing it right now, at least in America, Yeah. Um, that it's kind of like, yeah, I don't really need to harbor any doubts that uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. solitary confinement is a bad practice. Um, it happens to be that like the intuitions and the, uh, empirical evidence are like very strongly in favor of getting rid of it entirely. And that's true. So many other things in, in the prison system.
1: Yeah. Right. No, that's, that's right. Like, you know, you don't, um, you know, I mean, that's in, in some ways that's why I'm even like a little, you know, weirded out sometimes when, um, you get people who are, like, analytic moral philosophers who go into this stuff about, like, you know, their, like, military, like, uh, like just war theory and, you know, like, trying to, like, think about all this really fine grand stuff about drones and stuff. It's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, guys. Like, it, it seems like, um, you know, given the sort of really like blunt out there, unsubtle injustice of what's actually going on, you know, like, I I don't know. I, you know, like, like sometimes sort of surrounding that with this cloud of subtlety uh, feels a little bit morally counterproductive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny. There are some situations where like I diverge from the standard left position Mm -hmm. on uses of like state power, for example, Um, like the empirical evidence for policing, Shows that you know when police withdraw from, you know, urban neighborhoods, uh, in response to, you know, riots or, or whatever, like crime does go up, um, and there's like a pretty clear argument for like the state monopoly on violence, decreasing violence over time. Um,
1: yeah, no, that's 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 but. one of that's one I've come around somewhat on. Like, I think, um, I mean, obviously, fortunately, there are more there are more possibilities <laughs> than just uh
0: throwing more points at the bottom. yeah yeah
1: exactly right you know there are, you know but yeah. like um but especially this business about state monopoly of violence you know because for the longest time i kind of had um you know like i i sort of had this position that you know like i i had i had a lot of standard you know far left worries about state monopoly of violence um and then, like, it kind of – and, uh, and you know, I I, don't, I think some of them there's still something to, right? Like, I don't – like, I think that oftentimes progressives are maybe a little bit too um, – you know, like, certainly there are a lot of liberals who are, who are a little bit too cavalier about supporting, like, any kind of gun control measure at all without, you know, without kind of thinking about the mass incarceration effects or anything. But, like, yeah. at, at a certain point it did start – you know, like, I kind of – like I think I don't know sixty or seventy mass shootings ago, I, I kind of got over it and decided that like um, the ghost of Huey P. Newton would forgive me for you know thinking you know for like you know thinking that on balance we're probably better off with uh, tighter gun control laws, and in particular we're actually probably on balance better off in terms of civil liberties with tighter gun control laws because um, because I think that with you know, the more that like this kind of spectacular incidents of mass violence happen uh, realistically, if we don't respond to that by, by, you know, taking more guns out of circulation then what we're going to get um, is a society where, uh, where we have to, well, for one thing, um, you're talking about police. We're going to get more like, you know, the, What's the, you know, what is every, you know, what does every cop who shoots somebody always say, I thought he was reaching for a gun, right? You know, the few, yeah. fewer guns in circulation, the harder it is to get away with that excuse. And uh, and we also increasingly like uh, because we do have so many guns in circulation and we do have so many shootings all the time, that leads to a trend where we just have, um, you know, like everything becomes incredibly militarized, you know, that like uh, even – even suburban high schools, you know, start to look a little bit like prisons. And, you know, we have to kind of uh, go from, you know, hard target to hard target, you know, passing through checkpoints and metal detectors. And, you know, I think on on balance, you know, civil liberties are probably going to be, you know, better off in, um, you know, if we have some, some approximation of the gun laws that are they have in the UK or much of continental Europe, where like in, Uh, you know, in some of these places, you know, even the police don't usually like, you know, don't carry guns on routine patrols. And that, that seems like a much healthier place to reach towards than just, than just kind of, you know, cavalierly, uh, hoping that, you know, if we, uh, if we keep the gun status quo, then there'll be, you know, another Black Panther party. And this one won't just be wiped out like the last one was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh. The evidence for having police not carry sidearms and have like just a, a long gun available in their trunk for emergencies, that seems like a good reform that would actually, you know, help. And uh, it's unfathomable, yeah. <laughs> at least in the near term, that American police would agree to something like that. Yeah, but, but like a um,
1: long term, that does seem like something to reach towards. And there are also I think there are a lot of things you could do to reform um, police practices that, that don't actually involve um, just like you know, pulling them out or, you know, just, just not having, you know, certain areas be policed, you know, that, um, you know, like I think you can have, um, you know, you can have, you know, police presence, but um, you know, but like the, you know, but there are things you can do institutionally to make police officers more accountable. Um, You know, certainly, I mean, from, you know like from things as relatively mild and ineffective to uh as like review boards to uh things as ambitious as uh you know as having like maybe like uh more decentralized uh local forms you know like maybe forms of government maybe neighborhood councils or things like that that could actually yeah. make hiring and firing decisions
0: yeah there there was a uh movement for a more a civilian review board in New York with teeth for, for police. And I actually don't know where that ended up. Um, but there's definitely a lot we can do beyond just like sending or withdrawing police from, from a neighborhood. Um, and it's like, at this point, it'll take a lot to get me to call the police in a situation. Um, I've passed, you know, borderline Ugh. fights, with weapons on the street. Um, there's like a guy with a backpack and a guy with a knife and like, they weren't fighting, but they were like, 20 feet from each other, threatening uh, each other. And, you know, they're both black. And I'm like, if I call the police in this situation, I'm increasing the likelihood that violence happens. You know, good chance that Both these guys are just going to like yell at each other and go away. Right. Um, and like, if I lived in a country that had a police force that actually was good at de-escalating situations uh, and there to genuinely keep people safe as opposed to keeping them controlled by the state, um, you know, that would just be, much better for everybody. No, which
1: which is entirely possible. I mean, like it's. it's I mean, like we, like this is often a thing. You know, I like this is like. Um, I mean, really, like this is almost like when when people uh, talk about uh, like single payer health insurance as if it were this like you know utopian scheme that we just had to speculate about how it would work. You know, uh, that you know, like you know, there are. You know there are lots of countries in the world that you know, like even without making the kind of more dramatic structural changes that I would like, uh, have achieved this, right? You know that there are there are plenty, you know that like there are plenty of places in the world where like the police killing somebody is a is an extremely like rare event that's like a, that's perceived as like a huge national tragedy, you know, like this this is absolutely something we could aspire to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we've also danced around this, but where uh, do you disagree with like the mainstream left consensus?
1: Yeah. All right. So let's think, I mean, so uh, part of this depends on what you mean by mainstream, uh, but I will. I
0: guess I the like Jacobin sure. kind of like new left.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, one place that I, I definitely uh, disagree with the DSA of which I am a member uh, is, has to do with what we were talking about uh, that, uh, you know, the police and prison abolitionism, you know, that like, I think a lot of people really do have more reasonable positions, but they sort of fudge it by using these phrases like, um, you know, as we know it, right. Like these institutions wouldn't exist as we know them or things like that. It's like, yeah, that's not really a position though. Right. Like that's a, that's, that's like a marker where a position could go. Um, and you know, and whereas I certainly think we should be going for uh, considerably less, um, You know, I I think that we, uh, I think that, you know, we should have tried to dramatically scale back incarceration. Uh, Probably most people who who are in prison right now, uh, you know, shouldn't be that, you know, that there should, that like, that there are all, you know, like, should at the very least be in something that's short of all out prison, you know, halfway houses, etc., uh, you know, I, I think we should have extremely minimalistic prisons that actually do focus on rehabilitation. But I don't think prison abolition is a well thought out, or politically useful, or objectively correct way to put that. So I, yeah. you know that like it's because uh, I think for one thing it's yeah it's unclear what it means. I think that any reasonable version of it isn't going to end up being well described as prison abolitionism. But I think the effect of it when you talk to most normal people is going to be hold on wait a second you're saying what now right you know like you want you know you want every single person to be released from prison no matter what that's a crazy position it actually is a crazy position uh two other places maybe well okay so uh so that one's about the actual like teeth of the the position uh and i think uh Two other places where I don't know that I necessarily disagree with the ultimate conclusions, but I think people often argue for them in ways that I dislike uh, are, well, one we already talked about a little bit, which was abortion, uh, and another is trans rights. So to unpack both of those uh, briefly, uh, I think that uh, very, very often I see leftists arguing uh, when they're arguing about abortion, they accept this framing that it's about when life begins, right? You know, and um, now granted that we're not talking about left-wing academic philosophers here, you know, but like, you know, just ordinary leftists will accept that framing. And I think that's absolutely the wrong way uh, to frame it because of course, if that's right, then the other side is just trivially correct, right? Like if it's, if you're literally talking about life as a biological category, of course, a fetus is alive, right? That's that's not interesting, right? The, the interesting question is, maybe personhood or moral rights. If you make a distinction between those two things and uh, somewhat similarly, but probably even a little bit more controversially uh, I see a trend among a lot of people on the left when they are trying to defend, I think end of the day positions that I agree with about trans rights to sort of shade into denialism about biological sex as a category. And I don't think that's helpful or, or accurate. Right. You know, I think that, um, uh, I, I think that there are like people will often use this kind of argument that well, unusual chromosomal combinations exist and unusual combinations of, uh, of secondary sex characteristics exist, all of which is true enough. But, um, but of course what we should learn from thinking about the, uh, paradox, uh, is that just, um, the existence of, of, of gray areas and messy cases and uh, and overlap cases maybe even doesn't mean that, that there can't be a clear distinction between two things or clear examples on both sides of that distinction. Uh, and so I, I think that like just as a matter of, of reasoning, that's just a bad argument. And it's also unnecessary because I think that a much better way to think about it is just to be um, – well, uh, to go to um, maybe go further into philosophy and nerdery than is than is helpful, uh, what I sometimes think of is like compassionate Carnapianism, that you know you kind of say like uh, you know Rudolf Carnap talks a lot about you know there are like different linguistic be- frameworks that can all accurately represent the same reality, uh, and that you know you can that sometimes choices between. You know it's important to distinguish between choices between frameworks and choices and questions that arise within frameworks. Um, and so I'd say that you know, uh, which might just be an overly elaborate philosophical way of kind of packaging and putting a bow on the very simple idea that one way of using terms like man, woman, uh, ex, you know, etc., right, gender like all these gender terms is to refer, is to use like man to mean biologically male adult human being or woman to mean biologically female adult human being. And that's one internally coherent way of talking. Uh, But there's another internally coherent way of talking, which has to do with things like um, gender identity and gender expression. Uh, And which one of those is context appropriate might depend Uh, you know, might legitimately vary, but for, for most contexts, I think that just not being an asshole should be enough (laughs) to get you to use somebody's preferred pronouns to talk that way. And there's nothing inaccurate about talking that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some tendencies within the left to reject, you know, the framing of social issues in particular Mm -hmm. um, ways to like fight for rights for people, which, you know, totally makes sense. There's a ton of like traditions and social norms that exist for bad reasons and we should challenge and question them. But if you build your project uh, for, you know, getting respect for people on shaky, you know, scientific ground, uh, that doesn't really do anybody any good. And I, I used to be a, a, a fan of student Pinker and I, I still think he like has some valuable things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, one of his lines is like kind of down that chain of reasoning, like, you know, we should just treat people with respect. We should respect their preferences um, and also recognize that there are like, you know, scientific differences in average levels of, you know, obviously men and women have different levels of strength and like there's different hormones that play roles throughout the the life cycle that lead to like different average tendencies. But if you look at, you know, people as individuals, um, you know, some women are stronger than, you know, most men and, you know, there's like all kinds of, non overlap, um, and overlap, uh, between both. And, you know, we should just, I don't know, treat everybody with respect. Pretty, pretty simple.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. And we don't have to, um, you know, I mean, yeah, you don't have to deny, um, you know, findings, uh, you know, findings like that, you know, that are, that are on average, um, since uh you know in fact uh you know there's something you know there's something very strange about uh about that anyway right cuz you figure uh, you know the uh it's not uh, yeah so I mean, you you want to you know clearly uh clearly you do um you know like you know even if you know like to run with that example right you know that like you know, even if there are obviously average strength differences between men and women, right? I mean, what follows from it, right? I mean, like, you know, like, surely, like, that doesn't mean that, you know, Ronda Rousey shouldn't be able to have a fighting career or whatever, right? So, like, um, so, yeah, that all, that all seems right. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, those, those are the, um, you know, those, those are, I guess, the three, uh, <laughs> two or three things that come to mind, the police and prison abolitionism, um, ways of arguing for abortion rights and uh when correct positions on uh trans rights are argued for in terms of uh, denialism about like actual biological sex um so i i guess uh <laughs> you know i'm sort of trying to cat you know cast around for uh, for more more examples, but of course, there's also you know a you know there's a quote that I always love from Christopher Hitchens from you know before he went bad you know back in the 1980s before he was canceled, where you know he talks about how you know he hopes that you know he'll you know that like in his writing you know he'll you know he'll come up with like novel ways of presenting things, but. He would actually be very disappointed if uh, if people didn't know basically where he was going to stand on something uh, that, you know, that's, you know, if, uh, that like, you know, if you hit, uh, you know, given certain physical stimuli, he's going to have a certain response. Otherwise, it would indicate a loss of nerve, you know, and he thinks the same thing, you know, politically that, um, you know, the uh, the media loves the sort of um, the the surprising position you know, that he gives the, ironically, he gives the example of, um, you know, I'm a liberal, but I say let's bomb the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and the quote ends up, it's amazing. It's like he's, he's denouncing his future self. Uh, he says, uh, you know, well, I'm a lifelong socialist and I say let's not bomb the hell out of them. You see what I mean? It lacks the sex appeal somehow.
0: <laughs> yeah, people like to be surprised, I guess. There's that like counterintuition that triggers something in the brain. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so this is kind of a weird question, but I have some friends who think that the only justifiable ideological position is to commit to something, I'll call it radical empiricism. So, you know, you start from some basic moral axioms like we should reduce the suffering of all things that can suffer. And then you only support policies that are really well supported by rigorous evidence by things like randomized control trials. Um, You know, what are your thoughts on this? and, And what purpose do you see other ideologies like Marxism or liberalism serving?
1: Yeah. Um, So of course, you know, the, uh, you know, so it's, it's interesting, right? So they, I think that uh, what it sounds like when you kind of talk about that radical empiricism, uh, the most interesting part of it was the very first part about the like super minimal, uh, moral axioms because of course this is the problem with um, you know that at least makes it a coherent position but I think there are a lot of versions of this that uh, that really aren't and uh, because the reason they're not you know is because they they run up against the uh, the fact value distinction you know they, they say that uh, like you know the empirical, like, of course, it's good to, to the extent that our, uh, that our preferences are guided by, um, by empirical results. It's a, it's good and important to get those results right. You know, I certainly don't have a quarrel with that, but, um, but of course, as my favorite empiricist, David Hume would tell us, uh, the empirical results can't actually tell us anything, um, about what, uh, about what goals that we should have, right? You know what you know what what we should value. You know what we should strive towards, uh, and you know it's it. Like I said, the combination that you're describing that we have the sort of super minimal um, moral commitments, and then that leaves that lets like kind of all the work be done. You know by the uh, the empirical results more or less. You know it's coherent, but it's also I don't know, like, that feels a little arbitrary to me, like, it's kind of ad hoc, like, why, why is it that, um, you know, why is it that we should only be committed to uh, to these super uh, these super minimalistic uh, moral axioms, right? Like, it's, uh, like, those are things that, that seem right, but lots of other things do, too, right? Like, it's, uh, I mean, like, that kind of seems, that sort of seems like an evasion of doing the hard work balancing competing ideas against each other and, you know, and, and seeing, you know, trying to figure out which one matters more, you know, and all this stuff. I mean, this is something that I find that like, this is, this kind of feels like something that, um, a lot of utilitarians and a lot of like deontic libertarians have in common that, uh, that they kind of get their appeal to moral intuition out of the way very early in the process and they never revisit it. Right. So, um, you know, in the libertarian case, uh, it's something like, well, um, you know, aggressing against people or, you know, taking their property is bad. You know, that certainly sounds plausible. Um, and then rather than kind of trying to engage in some process of reflective equilibrium where, where you really think this through and you, you – you know, you weigh this against competing values and places where they come into conflict. Um, you just kind of get that over with. All right, I've already done my appeal to moral intuition and then I'm just going to modus ponens it forevermore and, you know, never use modus tollens. And it's kind of the same thing for some versions of uh, utilitarianism that uh, – well, you know, if you're just kind of starting to think about it, it sounds plausible that, you know, happiness is good and, you know, we should do, you know, or preference satisfaction or whatever. We should do what leads to more of it. And, you know, good consequences are better than bad ones. Uh, And these all sound like perfectly plausible beginning principles, but it seems very arbitrary to me to just sort of go with, you know, to just kind of do it like in your first, uh, you know, on the first page, uh, you commit to these vaguely plausible-sounding principles, and then you just kind of, you know, do whatever follows from them. Whatever follows from them. Whatever follows from them. So that that's one. So that's one thing. I'm very suspicious about this idea that you know you should have, um, that you should only be concerned with like some super minimalistic um, principles, because I I think that that's just not. Uh, you know, like that, that's, that seems like a very artificial way of, of just kind of ignoring a lot of the things that we actually value. Um, I guess
0: just to, just to push back on that a little bit. Sure, uh, go for it. I, I, I think that a properly capacious understanding of well-being, um, whether you call it utility or something else, actually does like capture the things that we care about. And, you know, very simple principles like, you know, we should reduce suffering, we should increase well-being – um, I'm no more deserving of well-being uh, than any other person like impartiality as, as I mentioned earlier you know those two things will get you like to some really really interesting places um, well, they'll also take
1: I- you to a lot of bizarre and plausible places right like uh, you know I mean just just impartiality and well-being satisfaction will get you that the uh, they should um, the doctor should carve up the friendless drifter to you know, do all the organ transplants
0: yeah i mean i think that there's a there's a book called a uh, moral Trides by joshua green that is like i think the best defense of utilitarianism that i know of um where he looks at cases like another case like slavery you know oh if the slaves uh give enough pleasure to the masters then you know it would justify using it and in that example he's like well you could look at it like, would people want to spend you know half of their life a slave to have the other half of their life where they get a slave? And the answer is like pretty clearly no. And even if you split it out like, "Oh, you get a slave like for 10 percent of your life and only have to be a slave for 10 percent of your life?" Like the answer is probably no. And we wouldn't want to live in a world where people get carved up for their organs, and when you like generalize these principles, you know you can see how you can get to like some kind of you know right space things that are still rooted in utility you know rights are just like a useful shorthand for um heuristics like moral heuristics that generally get to the right place
1: yeah i'm very uh well okay so i i think that uh it's probably bad practice to uh yeah okay uh (laughs) (laughs) to um to try to to try try to critique what are no doubt you know sophisticated and interesting arguments made in a book based on uh, thirty seconds of summary, uh, but <laughs> but to go ahead and do it's that not fair uh,
0: for you, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, but to go ahead and do that anyway, um, I, I mean, like so the se- the second part, like the first part, sort of just sounds like all right, so now we're talking like. We've kind of made the um, the move from like happiness to uh, to preference satisfaction, uh, like that seems like kind of what's involved in um, in doing the um... okay, uh, in uh, in going in thinking about like you know what would be uh, being enslaved for part of your life and what kind of trade offs you'd be willing to make, uh, but I'm not sure how far that's going to get you without really incorporating some. What, what are going to look like some very non-utilitarian values. So if, um, so for example, like, you know, if we're just thinking about like, you know, fairness, sure. But like, even if like you disvalue being enslaved so much that, you know, it would, um, like, let's say that the, uh, you know, that it would be, um, that, you know, you wouldn't be a slave for, you know, five minutes in order to have a slave for the rest of your life, whatever. It seems like at least, at least if what we're ultimately going to do is just, uh, we're still aggregating, you know, utility and subtracted disutility, then it's, uh, it seems like all any of these moves are going to really do for you are, you know, certainly all the moves about, you know, just how much we disvalue, uh, being enslaved uh, are going to be to, like, really increase the numbers that we need to justify it, right? So, like, uh, you know, like, maybe maybe enough moves like this will get you to the point where, you know, you'd have to have, like, you know, one person being, in, you know, enslaved, and that would, like, benefit, like, billions of people or something, Uh, which fair enough is very unrealistic, but I'm not sure how much realism matters for thinking about the underlying moral point. And as far as the, uh, the part about uh, whether you'd want to live in that world. um, I mean, that just seems like a fairly standard, I mean, at least on the face of it, right. I mean, it sounds like a fairly standard kind of rule utilitarian uh, move. And I've, I've, I've never been too sold on that, that like, I think that, uh, we have, um, you know, that, that I think that if you, you know, just because there are always going to be, you know, like enough different ways of cutting up, you know, what, uh, you know, what practices you're, you're like instantiating with any given action, then it seems like when you have, different practices that like in general, you'd want to live in that world that come into conflict. Uh, you're going to have like, I'm suspicious that the same problems aren't going to just keep on re-arising. But maybe this isn't the most interesting way to, to address this anyway, because, because um, you know, like whatever, like to the extent that like what we're really talking about, we talk about radical empiricism, you know, like that the that the discussion really just becomes a discussion about like utilitarianism. Um, then I wonder if to the extent that this is supposed to be like an anti ideological move, you know, or like a move that that should get us to not like uh, certain general, uh, normative frameworks, you know, because they might fail the test, right? You know, it might be that the it might be that they're going to tell us to do particular things that aren't going to, in particular cases, going to, um, you know, maximize utility Then I wonder if there isn't kind of a dilemma for the, the larger move, because, um, either, you know, we're, uh, either this is, isn't going to be able to generate like this sort of bigger rights-based, you know, framework, you know, or that it's not going to be able to generate these, or things that look like rights or whatever, uh, in which case that's just not very morally plausible. Uh, or if it is, then well, hold on. If we can, if we can be confident, like the way that like John Stuart Mill thought that we could, uh, about all of these really complicated uh, utility calculations that, like, respecting things that look like individual rights and all that stuff, as much as like trying to like try to take apart all the sort of different contexts in which we might respect these individual rights and like empirically test their their um, the amounts of happy well-being or suffering they lead to a la carte is going to be incredibly daunting. So either we have some kind of epistemic shortcut where we can be pretty sure that they are, it is going to generally lead to good results, uh, in which case I would say, well, hold on then. How, how are we ruling out similar epistemic shortcuts for things other than just kind of general respect for, um, for uh, individual rights, right? Like, well, how about, you know, like, can't I have epistemic shortcuts uh, for, um, for other kinds of political commitments being things that will generally increase utility so I don't have to be a radical empiricist testing every instance of these political commitments a la carte – or if we don't have those kinds of epistemic shortcuts we can use for individual rights, uh, then then again, I mean, I, I think it's um, the idea that that uh, that even a capacious idea of well being is going to um, is going to accommodate our standard moral intuition starts to sound a lot more dubious.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I guess like in short, it's kind of like a computation problem. Yeah, is is, is at least one of the angles you're talking about there. Yeah, where... yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. That like. Um, you know that if you think like there are there are lots of standard utilitarian moves going back to Bill for like sort of saying hey here are all these ways that we can we could we could like solve these computation problems for utilitarianism and individual rights, um, and it seems to me that the more you buy into that, the more you undermine the idea that uh, that all all political uh like every policy idea every you know moral impulse really needs to be you know radically empirically tested uh because you know uh because if this computation problem you know like basically it seems very arbitrary to me to say that this computation problem is is totally solvable as far as individual rights but when it comes to like any other sort of general thing about like you know, whether we can, um, you know, like whether socialism is better than capitalism or anything like that, you know, that like, uh, that it's, it's very unsolvable everywhere else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think another angle or another defensive ideology is that, um, there's things where we just won't know the answer, but we'll have to make decisions anyway. And there won't be a good reference class, uh, to look at like, you know, what, what, do we do like in the case of like intervening in Syria or something, there's a reference yeah. class of like all the past interventions and non interventions and like the outcomes of each of those are complicated by the different regimes in place at each time, relative military strengths, like yeah. all this like infinite number of variables. Um, and you don't really know what, what to do. And so if you have an ideology that says like intervention by the United States has historically been really bad, we're just not going to do it. Like, that might be better than I don't know. studying the academic research on it, um,
1: yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> right, right. I, uh, yeah, like the people who want to uh, evaluate every uh, intervention a la carte uh, <laughs> seem to be a lot more, you know, a lot more likely to endorse interventions that go terribly uh, than than people who apply the more general rule. So maybe there's a kind of meta strategy thing. And yeah, there's also. And I, I think this is kind of what you seem to be hinting at like at the beginning of the answer that like sometimes um, for various reasons, it's, it's not uh, it's not necessarily practical to uh, to be radically empiricist about everything. And so, uh, you know, like the, the joke I always think of is about uh, whether is about people who, you know, make a big deal about um, evidence based medicine. And, you know, that's uh, whether, you know, whether you'd accept like a parachute, you know, with the without doing like double blind trials about, you know, people jumping out of airplanes without parachutes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've I've spoken with uh, some scientists and on the topic of like psychedelics and the challenge of doing a blind with a psychedelic study where both the user and the observer know pretty quickly who's gotten the placebo and who's gotten the real thing. And they're like, look, when we were testing pharmaceuticals, you're looking for, like, tiny effect sizes where you have to have massive, you know, really well-powered experiments um, with, like, the most rigorous double-blinds possible. And even there, you're seeing, like, tiny effects that, you know, you need the n- number of people to determine them from just, you know, random chance. Whereas with psychedelics, like, the effect sizes are so massive that it kind of, like, swamps um, yeah, right. the normal treats.
1: Yeah, right. nobody's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Right. I mean, there are, you know, like if you, uh, people, you know, like, uh, yeah, people, people could ask, like, you know, be unsure about, you know, like there's the sort of stereotype about the, you know, teenagers getting high the first time, you know, my high, I can't tell. Right. You know, uh, (laughs) and you know, people can, you know, deceive themselves about, you know, whether they're drunk, uh, but you know, it's 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 very hard. To, <laughs> it's very hard to not be sure whether acid has kicked in, or at least that's what I hear.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, cool. And I guess I like, just want to end on this question. So I think like epistemic hum- humility overall is a good thing. So like having yes. doubt about whether you're right, yeah, is great, right? And and you talk about this in the end of the book. You implore people to slow down when trying to engage in logical reasoning. Um, but but sometimes I worry that the people who are coolly considering all the evidence are getting steamrolled by (laughs) ideologues who are committed to a very specific goal, no matter what the evidence says. So what balance do you think we should strike between searching for truth and fighting for what we believe in?
1: Yeah. uh, Well, I have a, um, I have a, uh, a really, uh, a really well-developed, very precise, uh, uh, rubric for for deciding when you've fallen on the wrong side of that line but uh unfortunately uh the zencaster that it's um there's not quite enough space left of this recording (laughs) Uh, that's yeah no i mean that's that's a very fair worry i I mean there, there just isn't a good um i like it's a matter of judgment and, uh, and we would all be much better off if there was a, uh, if there was like some sort of clear, sharp line here that, uh, we could appeal to that, like, this is clearly a place, um, where, you know, you should, you should be very careful to consider all the possible angles. And this is very clearly a place where you should be resisting obvious bullshit, um, but there, there just isn't one. Right. So uh, like I can, you know, I mean, in some ways this is a little bit like the, the discussion about um, calculation problems, about uh, utilitarian consequences of, of different policies. Right. That like uh, you don't, you know, like the, the same way that like, okay, you, you can't uh, and you know, whatever, I mean, to be fair, no utilitarian thinks you can or demands that you can, do like elaborate utility calculations every time you act. Uh, But then that also we have to have some sort of like um, procedures for, you know, that are sort of good enough at like figuring out what to do. Uh, But at the same time, uh, that does increase the chances that, you know, you're not going to like, you're not going to be doing the thing that's going to maximize utility. I think it's going to be that roughly – the same thing over here, right? Which is why I've never thought, like, I'm I'm not a utilitarian, but I've never thought that was a great objection, utilitarianism, because, you know, I think that this, to some extent, that's just kind of the human condition, that, like, we, we want to do things because we have certain goals, but, like, we, uh, we realistically can't be certain that we'll achieve those goals. And so, um, you know, we can certainly, like, the same way that you can kind of know that... Um, you know, giving somebody an ice cream cone is probably gonna cause more utility than punching them in the face, you know, without like having to add up the hedons and antihedons. Uh, you know, I, I think there are some kind of rough and ready like ways, things that we could do here that like there are certain kinds of bad like things that we can kind of recognize and smell out as like silly bad faith arguments we don't need to worry about that much because there's similarity to other things we've run into and um but and you know there are and there are other cases where you know none of those procedures are activated so it does make more sense to slow down but i mean i guess all i can say is that i uh i think that i i think that they i don't see uh i think it's a very fair worry but i also think that in the landscape that we live in right now um you know, we, we could probably stand to err a little bit more on the side of slowing down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Especially when it comes to instituting, you know, massive social policies. Um, but especially when you're in the, you know, powerless position as (sighs) the left is at the moment, um, being pretty full throated in your condemnation of atrocities as you know, things we're seeing right now with like immigration. Um, I don't think I need to like read any academic papers to know that people shouldn't be forced to drink water out of a toilet. Um, And and just having that kind of moral clarity, I think is an asset for the left in a world where so many people lack it.
1: Yeah. I mean like it, right. Like that. uh, Oh God. Who's the person? Megan McArdle is the one who uh, I believe who keeps writing the columns about how people shouldn't condemn this or that because they haven't considered all the, you know, butterfly effect scenarios whereby, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we uh, averted the Grenfell towers, uh, you know, by installing more sprinklers that would have led to like even worse, you know, uh, outcomes down the line. And, you know, so, so that's clearly too much, right? Like you can kind of say, like, I think that, um, and you know, I think there's also an important, um, I think there's also an important difference in context, right? Like, uh, you know, that there's – that I think you can kind of have the context of um, where you take a step back and try to reason about things and, uh, and you know, and you do uh, – and like really carefully pick apart the arguments, you know, that there are times when that makes sense. But like maybe even on the same issues – You know, since you don't want to be paralyzed into an action, like I think it makes perfect sense to sort of have um, to like have an act, an attitude that you use in the context of of activism where you sort of rely on what you take yourself to have figured out over the course of a lifetime of thinking about this stuff. And, you know, and you kind of use, um, you know, you kind of use procedures like, you know. Uh, you know, every, every other, you know, U.S. intervention since, you know, World War II has, has led to horrible consequences, uh, you know, so like when, uh, and there's no particular reason to think this one will be different or, you know, uh, there's, there's no particular reason on the face of it to think that, you know, uh, that uh, rounding up uh, peaceful people and putting them into concentration camps uh, is is going you know is going to be justified in this case, right? You know that you can kind of use those those moral, um, you know, those moral decision procedures in the course of being politically engaged while also you can, you know, like uh, you know, you don't have to pause your political engagement necessarily while you think about arguments, right? You can be you can be politically engaged and also, during certain times, you know, like think harder about the arguments uh, and, and, you know, maybe event, maybe if during the course of thinking harder about the arguments, you realize that you, you know, you might realize that you were wrong about something, but, uh, and then you'll have to shift your political engagement accordingly. But that, that really doesn't mean that you have a moral obligation to like not object to concentration camps until you've really thought about all the possible butterfly effect excuses for them
0: yeah yeah exactly um well cool ben uh thank you so much for for taking the time to talk with me where can we find more about you um where can people find the book anything else you'd like to plug
1: sure uh so uh the the book uh you can find uh on you know all the standard places uh amazon barnes and noble um you know, you can. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, you, you can, can
0: feed the Jeff Bezos machine.
1: Yes, you can feed the Jeff Bezos machine. As uh, yes, I did
0: by getting it on Kindle.
1: Uh, yep, yep. Um, you know. So, uh, and you know, but if you don't like that, you know, there's. Uh, I think if you, I think if you just Google uh, John Hunt Publishing, that's the parent company. Uh, they of uh, Zero Books, which is the publisher. the John Hunt Publishing has like a, a website with like a big list of uh, everywhere you can get it. Um, and of course, you know, there's a, I really liked, I saw Nathan Robinson a little while back or, you know, a day or two ago uh, had a nice tweet about how um, sometimes conservatives will, you know, will try to bait him and say, well, as a socialist, you know, shouldn't you be giving away your book for free? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, if, well I, I absolutely do agree as a socialist, you should be able to, you should be able to read my book for free, which is why we have this institution called public libraries, you know, <laughs> where we all pay into them together. And, uh, and, and, and then you can check books out and read them for free. So, you know, you know, I, I, I am in favor of that. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I support the existence of public libraries. So, you know, uh, have them order a copy and, you know, and you can, and you can read it for free there. Um, So, yeah, those are all the places to find the book. Uh, You can also find me – I know I have not been great about keeping to the schedule in recent weeks, but in theory on the Zero Books YouTube uh, channel, uh, there's usually a new video by me on Mondays. And on uh, Tuesday nights, I have a regular segment on the Michael Brooks show called The Debunk. Uh, And if all that isn't enough for you – uh, there's also, you can also go to, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Ben Burgess that if you subscribe to that, you can get uh, a couple of essays a week. And one of those is always on a uh, patron suggested topic.
0: Cool. That's all a lot of great stuff. And, uh, like I said earlier, I enjoyed the book and, uh, glad to see somebody, you know, putting a manifesto out there for logic facts and reason on the left.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Browitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.